The Mass in Slow Motion by Father Ronald Knox Sermon 11 Communicantes Consecration Thy life shall be, as it were, hanging before thee. Last time, I'm afraid, we left off in the middle of a sentence. The bit of the Mass we are coming to now begins with the participle, communicantes, and the sentence goes on for rather over twenty lines without any main verb in it. And I'm sure that any of you who do Latin have been told that you must never write a sentence without a main verb in it. Some clever people think this participle communicantes is just hanging in the air, like when you send a Christmas card, which just says, wishing you a happy Christmas. There's no vain main verb in that. Or when you end your letter home, hoping this finds you as it leaves me. There is no main verb in that. But I don't believe that's so here. I think the participle agrees with the last set of people who have been mentioned, and that is you. In coming to Mass, in offering your attentions at Mass, you were united yourselves with the great string of saints which follows, et memoriam venerantes, uniting yourself in a rather distant, unapologetic way, making a kind of mental curtsy to our Blessed Lady and to St. Peter and with all the rest of them. But you do, nevertheless, unite yourself in thought with this string of saints. You take your place, as it were, at the end of the queue. We have already reminded ourselves that the Mass is all one, and that all Christians hearing Mass in all parts of the world are present in chapel when we have Mass here. But now we see that the thing goes wider than that. The saints in heaven, too, from Our Lady downwards, are all part of it. You, as a faithful Christian, are holding hands with the next person, so to speak, and she with the next person, and so on and on and on, back and back, up until you get to our blessed lady herself. I don't think we need to worry if we don't know all about the saints whose names appear on the list. When we finish the apostles, we go on to the early popes and the early martyrs who suffered at Rome. But of course, they are only specimens. It's like when you're doing an exam and you finish up the last question with a scrawl that says, No time for more! either because you hadn't time for any more or because you don't know anything else to say in answer to that particular question. St. Pius V cut down the list, as he cut down everything else in the Mass. No time for more seems to have been his motto. But they are all meant to be there, really, all your favorite saints. And you are quite right to think of them, if you care to, instead of people like St. Cornelius and St. Chrysogonus, who were very holy men, but who somehow don't ring a bell. The server does ring a bell at this point. If I had blown my nose or any made or made any unexpected gesture with my hand since the Sanctus, he's probably rung it already by mistake. But this is the place where it is supposed to come, just after the list of saints, when I hold my hands extended over the chalice like that. The bell, this time, is really meant to wake you up. Unless you want to dig in the back from Mother Claire, it wouldn't do to leave you snoozing on to the actual moment of the consecration. You have got to be ready for when it comes. And the gesture I make, together with the signs of the cross, which I make immediately afterwards, are a kind of blessing, rather like the blessing I give you when you're going away for the holidays. I give it at Mass to the bread and wine, when they're just going off on a journey, the strangest journey imaginable. They're going to transcend the order of nature altogether. Meanwhile, I ask Almighty God to accept this offering made on our behalf, but also on behalf of His whole family. We never get away from that point, you see. The Mass is all one. I ask that the bread and wine may be blessed, that they may be set apart, that God's promise and connection with them shall be ratified, that is, that it shall be kept, that they shall form a reasonable sacrifice, and therefore an acceptable sacrifice. We do not, under the Christian dispensation, offer to God dumb animals or lifeless things, 
but it will be all right about the bread and the wine, because once consecrated, they will be built into a human body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I ask that they may be accepted. Then, with two more signs of the cross, I ask God to perform the miracle of transubstantiation. What happens if the priest falls down dead at this point? The answer is that you say one Hail Mary for my soul and go back to breakfast. There's nothing special that needs to be done about it. At least about the Mass. For all intents and purposes, it hasn't started yet. Three minutes later, when the consecration has happened, if the priest who is celebrating the Mass falls dead or is taken gravely ill, any other priest who can be got a hold of must come and finish the Mass, even if he isn't fasting, even if he's under ecclesial discipline and is forbidden in the ordinary way to celebrate any sacrament at all. There's a lot of exciting rubrics like that at the beginning of the big Latin Missal, which aren't printed in the books that you have. I only mention the circumstance here so as to ram home the fact that the really important moment of the Mass has now arrived. True, the Mass is all one. True, all the bits we've been talking about in the last few sermons I've got uh, are really I've given you are really part of the sacrifice. But if the consecration doesn't happen, all that goes for nothing. It's just like burnt logs that lie about in the grate when the coal has never been lit. It's only with the consecration that the sacrifice of the Mass is achieved. I've represented the Mass to you more than once as a kind of ritual dance. And here, at this most solemn part of it, I think you can say with all reverence that it becomes a kind of ritual drama. The priest finds himself almost absent-mindedly acting the part of Jesus Christ. In consecrating, he recalls the history of Holy Thursday evening, just in a few sentences which include the actual words of the sacrament that was instituted. But he's not only content to merely tell the story, he acts it. He suits up in the action of the word. When he says the word, he took bread, or he took the cup, the priest suits the action to the word. So too at the words, lifting up his eyes to heaven, the priest lifts his own eyes to heaven. That's a curious point. None of the Gospels mention that our Lord did that. St. Paul in Corinthians doesn't mention that our Lord did that. Was it just a guest, or has the rite of the Roman Mass preserved by tradition that has lasted 19 centuries and more, a detail which the sacred authors omitted to mention. I don't know, and maybe we'll never know, but that is a digression. What I'm trying to explain to you is that the priest does here act a part, and the part of our blessed Lord himself. Isn't that perhaps a rather irreverent idea? Why no, because this isn't ordinary acting like the plays that you act here. When you act, you pretend that somebody is there uh, who isn't there, like King Henry VIII or Macbeth or somebody. But the priest in this internal drama, doesn't pretend that somebody is there who isn't there. Jesus Christ is really there. There's no pretending about that. He is really there, not merely in the sacred host, but also in the person of the priest. We mustn't say the priest is Jesus Christ. That would be blasphemy and nonsense. No, but the priest has become a kind of dummy through which, here and now, Jesus Christ is consecrating the sacrament, just as he did but as in, in his own person 1,900 years ago. The most obvious symbol of that fact is that between the consecration and the ablutions, the priest keeps the thumb and his first finger of either hand pressed close together, except when he's actually holding the sacred host between them. The practical purpose of that is obvious. There may be some tiny crumb of the host sticking to his fingers, and there must be no danger of dropping. But as I say, it seems to me the thing is an excellent symbol a symbol of the fact that the priest, when he consecrates, is turning himself into a kind of dummy, a kind of tool. 
He's abandoning the use of his bodily muscles and lending them to Jesus Christ. He's turning himself into a kind of dummy for Jesus Christ to use exactly as he wants to. You probably couldn't turn a key in a door by taking your finger and your by taking it between your first finger and your middle finger. At least you wouldn't do it clumsily. I could, because that's the way every priest turns the key of the tabernacle when he gives communion during Mass. You can't separate his thumb and the first finger. I say he can't. I mean he mustn't. But the habit grows so upon you that if you're a priest, it feels as if it's impossible to separate them. They've gotten stuck like that, as your mother told you that you would get your face stuck if you if the wind changed while you were making faces at her. I've been laboring that point about the priest identifying himself with Jesus Christ at the Mass, because the thing is that you... The thing is that that's what you should be doing, first and foremost, while the consecration is happening. You want to identify yourself with Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ being offered there in the sacred host. What you come to Mass for isn't to worship Jesus Christ present in the sacrament of the altar. That isn't Mass, that's benediction. You come to Mass to offer Jesus Christ with the priest, and to offer yourself to God with Jesus Christ and as part of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's true that the actual moment when the priest elevates You are taught to look up and say, My Lord and my God. Look up again when he elevates the chalice, though I've never found any book which gives any prayer to say when the priest elevates the chalice. But that is just pointless. Obviously, you couldn't allow our blessed Lord to become especially present close to your side without saying, How do you do? But that is not what you come to Mass for. You came to Mass to offer to God, offer him to God, and yourself with him. Possibly, you will complain that what you've heard a lot about this before, long ago when you're talking about the offertory. I was saying that we give the priest bread and wine to perform the sacrifice with, and we're really meant to be presenting ourselves, our souls and bodies, as a living sacrifice to God. Yes, I know, but that act of oblation that you were making earlier in the Mass was only a kind of rehearsal for the real act of oblation, which you ought to be making now. A kind of rehearsal. I'm not sure that isn't a rather good way of putting it. Most of you are rather mad on acting, so you'll understand what I mean when I say that there isn't all the difference between the world rehearsing your lines and even at a dress rehearsal and having to speak them on at the night. The footlights and the audience somehow make all the difference. Really, of course, if you break down and make a fool of yourself, it will be a great relief and to a delight to the audience. You'll make a day for them. But that side of the picture doesn't present itself to your mind, does it, when you actually step into the the glare of the footlights. You have ceased to just be yourself. You become a part of the cast. You throw yourself into the thing instinctively, not bothering in the least about the audience and whether they are enjoying themselves. Well, there is the same sort of difference between the offertory and the mass, and the consecration at mass. One's the rehearsal, the other's the real thing. So I would say, don't make too much of a glance at which host... Who I would say, don't make too much of a glance when you give to the host when it's elevated, and of the prayer that goes with it. Let it only be a momentary burst of recognition, and but then relax the effort of your own mind, and let yourself be carried away on the stream of intercession which is going on all around you when Jesus Christ is there. Don't get worked up about whether you're praying well or not. Just stand down and let our Lord do the praying for you. He has taken over the sacrifice, and he's going to offer it for us. At this point, above all in the Mass, don't bother to try to follow in your book if you found your prayers that if you find prayers that come easier without. But if you should be following in the book, you will see that the next bit which comes after the consecration says just what we should want to say. Priests and people, the priest is careful once more to associate the whole congregation with him. It is their sacrifice, not his. Priests and people remind themselves of our Lord's passion, resurrection, and ascension. 
the last three events of his life, and this new meeting with him reminds us of all of them. The Christ who left us at the Ascension has come back to us. The Christ who triumphed over matter by rising from the dead has come back to us under the forms of lifeless things, bread and wine. The Christ who offered himself to us through suffering is impassable now, but offers himself still. With all this in mind, we present to God the oblation. We are making to him out of his own gifts to us, his own gifts of bread and wine, but what a change has come over them. Bread that was meant to sustain our bodies just for a few hours, now ready to bring us to eternal life. Wine that might be used to cheer us up for an evening, now implanting unfailing health in our souls. God's gifts, but so beyond our ordinary human reach that we are ashamed to accept them. We offer to give them to him and give them back to him. No, really, Lord, it's awfully good of you, but we ought not right take such gifts as these. Please take them back. We must offer to give them back, offer to share them with him, before we can reconcile ourselves with the ideal of actually consuming them the body and blood of Jesus Christ.